So last week we started our study of the book of First Thessalonians. If you didn't have a chance to be here for that message, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to at least the opening of that message if you want to get some historical context of what was taking place at the time this letter was being written. Uh, but we're talking about the idea of progressing in faith as we go through the book of First Thessalonians. Now today we're picking up at First Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're just going to look at the first eight verses of 1 Thessalonians 2. But there's a good question that I think gets asked uh, by virtue of the things that Paul's stating here that I want us to be wrestling with, and that's this idea of, are we living for God's approval? Are you living for God's approval? I think that that's something he demonstrates when we look at these eight verses. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Starting with verse 1, and like I said, we're going to read down to verse 8 as we wrestle with this question, are you living for God's approval? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, this is what it states. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God, in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together today. And we pray that as we look at this second chapter of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand the things that are being spoken of here. We pray that we would grow in our walk with you as a result. We pray that we would understand more about this idea of what it means to actually live for your approval. And Lord, we're grateful for the fact that we have the privilege to just carve out time like this to be able to look at a portion of Scripture that's meant to help us, help us progress in our faith in you. Lord, we know that you want us not to remain as spiritual infants, you want us to grow spiritually mature. And this is a chapter and this is a book that certainly helps feed that maturity. So we're grateful, Lord, for the privilege to be able to carve out some time now. We pray that you'd put our minds and our hearts in the right spot to be able to receive these truths. And we commit this time to you now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Approval is something that we all seek. Every single one of us, we all seek approval. Those of you that are parents could probably point out uh, many examples of your children seeking approval from you. Uh, you know, probably after the worship service is over, there are, some of your children will be jumping off the steps, and they will want you to watch first, right? Hey, hey, mom, look at me. Look at how many steps I can jump off of without falling when I land. Or, you know, in the summer, it's always like, hey, dad, look at me. I'm going to dive off the diving board. Make sure you're watching when I come up out of the water. I need confirmation 
confirmation that you saw, or it's kind of like, hey, Grandpa, I'm going to scare Grandma. Watch, right? That's something I'm looking into the future and hoping that my grandchildren uh, say to me someday. So just just make a note of that, all right? Um, As an adult, I've actually come to realize something very interesting. Uh, and, And maybe some of you have realized this about yourself as well, but I notice that I frequently care and seek the approval of my wife and my children. I actually care about the opinions of my household. I care about the opinions of others as well, but I care about the opinions of my household more. And I've actually told my, my wife uh, multiple times through the years, particularly when I was either dealing with something difficult or had been criticized or whatever, if I felt like I had her approval, I felt like I was still okay. You know, I felt like I was still fine as long as uh, I was convinced that my wife was still on my team, still supportive. And I think all of us care about the approval and care about the opinion of other people to one degree or another. I think it's only natural to care about those things, uh, hopefully to a healthy degree. But it's not the approval of our contemporaries that we're called to live for. That's not to be the driving force that motivates our life. Yes, the approval of people we care about, it certainly is nice. It's certainly kind. It could be affirming and encouraging. But it's not really what we're called to live for. In fact, when you look at what Scripture teaches us, it teaches us that God's approval is what matters most. His approval matters most. And so here, you have Paul and you have Silas. They had been preaching in Thessalonica. They had gone to that city. They had been preaching there. And while they were preaching there, they dealt with some considerable opposition. Now, this wasn't new to them. They had dealt with opposition elsewhere as well. And we'll talk about this in just a moment. But their ministry, even in the midst of this opposition, it produced converts. And there were plenty of people in the city that noticed that their ministry was producing converts. And they disliked that immensely. And so, in an effort to discredit Paul and Silas, their critics would, would really try to very diligently slander them. And my understanding is that their thought was probably, hey, if we could discredit the people that have brought this message, we could therefore discredit the message. We could cast doubt on the message of the gospel, and maybe then those that seem inclined to believe the message of the gospel won't believe it if we can discredit the messengers who came and brought it. And so that takes us to the chapter that we're at today, the scriptures that we just read a moment ago. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, again, we're just looking at the first eight verses today. We'll pick up at verse 9 next time. But you have Paul addressing some of the accusations that were brought against him and against those that were serving alongside him. And in doing so, I think he gives us a fantastic glimpse of what it looks like to live for God's approval. And there's actually, you know, there's certain portions of Scripture that when you come to them, you can look at them as a mantra for how you choose to live your life. This is one of them. This is one of those Scriptures that when you look at it, you can look at it and say, all right, this is the kind of guy I want to be. This is the way I want to live. These are principles that I don't want to just hear once and then let them kind of mingle in my head for a moment and then forget. I don't want to forget this stuff. This is the type of stuff that really can be a code of ethic, a code of living that you have the Apostle Paul talking about here as he demonstrates what it looks like to live for God's approval. And based on this text, what we're looking at today, 
um, I want to suggest a few questions that I think would be helpful for us to be asking ourselves if we want to, to determine whether or not it's God's approval we're trying to live for. And one of the questions is this, how are you measuring what it means to succeed? So just think about the question for a second before I reread verses 1 and 2. How are you measuring what it means to succeed? Probably all have some sort of metric we're using, right? Well, look again at those first two verses. There it says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. For though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, I enjoy reading the thoughts of many prolific authors. At any given time, I used to joke that I had 10 books going at any given time. And recently I looked at how many books I have sitting on the table next to my chair. It's more than 10. So I don't know how many books at a time I have going on. You know how some people channel surf? I book surf. And I like reading through a lot of things at once. If I get bored with a book or I'm like, all right, that's good enough, that's one chapter there, I'll read a chapter in something else. And I do that frequently. And many of the books that I've read over recent decades have, have dealt with the subject of leadership one way or another. It's one of my favorite topics to, to come back to. I try and read at least a couple leadership books each year uh, just to get ideas. I, want, you know, I, I look at it, my perspective as this. I want to lead well. I want to be a good leader. I try and fill my head with the wisdom and counsel of people who I think are good leaders and have demonstrated that they understand the nature of good leadership. But there's a word that will show up frequently when you're reading books on leadership. And it's a word that gets defined a couple different ways depending on your worldview and depending on your perspective. And the word that tends to come up repeatedly is the word success. People talk about success. You know, when you read leadership books, they're always talking about success. Well, depending on their worldview, it's very clear that that word is being defined very differently. If they embrace, if an author embraces an earthly worldview, they tend to view success through the worldly metric of achievement that can be quantified in numbers. So whatever field they happen to be in, they tend to look at it and they, they quantify success through worldly achievements that you can count in numbers. So that tends to be one way that success gets defined. But I've noticed that if I'm reading an author who embraces a biblical worldview, which I want us as a congregation, as God's family to embrace. A biblical worldview has a different perspective on success. A biblical worldview tends to view success through the metric of faithfulness to God regardless of the outcome or regardless of the visible results. So it's the idea of faithfulness to God regardless of what you can see in any given moment. And here you have the Apostle Paul showing that he uses that metric. You know, Paul measured success by the metric of faithfulness to God that was producing spiritual fruit. And some of the spiritual fruit was visible and obvious, and some of it wasn't obvious, at least in the moment. But, he, but faithfulness to God was the metric that was being used here. And so regarding his visit to, to Thessalonica, you have these critics that are targeting him and targeting people like Silas that have worked alongside him. 
And they may have been stating that his visit to the city was useless. That's one of the implications that you can read into what Paul happens to be stating here. But Paul knew otherwise. He knew that his visit to the city was not, was not useless. When he came to that city, there was no church. When he left that city after a short time, there was a young church with growing believers. It had been established. They were on fire. They were excited. Uh, they were growing in their faith. Many of them had a whole variety of questions, much of which becomes kind of the, the context for which Paul is writing this letter. He's trying to answer these various questions that these enthusiastic young new believers are expressing. But it was clear that the Lord was blessing his efforts. It was clear that the Lord was blessing his efforts. And so when you measure things by worldly success, yeah, maybe, maybe worldly speaking, they wouldn't have looked at what Paul did and said it was successful. They would probably say he came in vain. But Paul was looking at it differently. He's saying, no, I was faithful to what God asked me to do. And the results of that aren't really up to me. If I'm faithful with what God asks me to do, I have succeeded in being obedient to the one who impressed upon my heart the desire to do it. And again, keep in mind that that Paul's efforts to, to preach the gospel were frequently opposed. And I think about this in the context that I live in. When I think about the kind of persecution that I have dealt with, I have dealt with persecution on a very minor scale when I compare my life to the Apostle Paul. Anytime I've ever dealt with persecution of any kind, it's really, it's, it's really been mostly verbal, right? It's really been something verbal that somebody's done. As of yet, you know, still young enough that maybe this will change, but as of yet, I haven't been beaten when I've shared the gospel. You know, I, I, I haven't been um, threatened with my life. I haven't experienced those things. Um, But here you have the Apostle Paul having a very different experience as he's preaching the gospel. He mentions that he and Silas were treated shamefully when they did so in the city of Philippi. Are you familiar with what happened to the Apostle Paul and Silas while they were in Philippi preaching the gospel? Do you remember what took place there? Um, You don't have to turn there, but at some point, if you just want to make a note, it's recorded in the book of Acts chapter 16. And in Acts chapter 16, we're told that the authorities stripped off their garments, beat them with rods, threw them in prison, and locked their feet in stocks for preaching the gospel. You know, stripped off their clothes, beat them with rods, threw them in prison, locked their feet up in stocks. But even in the midst of that experience, many people in the city of Philippi came to faith in Christ, including the jailer. The jailer and his family came to faith in Christ. And the seed of the gospel was bearing fruit. And Paul was measuring success by his faithfulness to the Lord's calling on his life. Not on whether or not the cities that he visited threw him a parade or made things easy for him. That was not how he was measuring success. So, I mean, just, you know, as we're wrestling with this, as we're trying to think about, all right, what does it look like to live a life that seeks God's approval? Let's start where Paul starts in this portion of Scripture. How are we measuring what it means to succeed? You know, when you look at your life, do you ever beat yourself up and say, oh, you know, I thought I'd do this, I thought I'd do this. When we beat ourselves up about those things, aren't we measuring life and its value by worldly metrics? You know, when you're beating yourself up about all sorts of things that you thought would be the case at this age and thought would be the case at this age, it's like, oh, really? What standard of measurement are you using? Most likely a worldly standard. If you're measuring your life by whether or not you are obedient to the Lord's leading on your heart as He spoke to you as a much healthier metric by which to measure success. 
If you could say, yes, I've spent decades listening to the voice of God. When the Lord spoke to me, I answered and I said yes. I think that's a very successful life. Whether or not the worldly metrics that typically get used to measure success line up, that stuff doesn't really matter. Faithfulness to God is what matters. And you have the Apostle Paul demonstrating that he got that. And so he was able to proceed even in the midst of being beaten, even in the midst of being thrown in prison because he wasn't measuring success by whether or not they threw him a parade. He was measuring success by whether or not he was listening to what God said, if he was faithful to God. Something else, another question that I want us to ask in reference to what Paul brings up in this chapter is this. Have you examined your motives for what you're doing? So again, this idea of living for the approval of God. I think the follow-up question now is, have you examined your motives for what you're doing? Look at verses 3 through 5. You could tell Paul had done some self-examination. He says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Now, one of the most common ways people in every era are deceived is through false teachers who are trying to obtain money. In Paul's era, there were actually people who would travel place to place as false teachers trying to fleece people of their money. They would try and build trust with people and then fleece them. So they would only stay a short time wherever they were going because eventually, if you stay too long and you're a false teacher, what ends up happening is you get found out. People dis discover what your life is really like. And so these false teachers would go place to place. They would deceive people. They would get money from the people and then they would move on to another, another place where unsuspecting people could be deceived. That was happening all over the place during that particular era. There were some people that, that had learned to watch for that because it kept happening so much. And by the way, in our era, it's still taking place. And in fact, some, some people might be able to argue that, that it might be happening even more now because in our era now, we have many forms of media that can be exploited and, and all sorts of things like that that people could utilize to spread their false teaching and fleece people. And so it may actually be happening more now than it was even happening during Paul's era, but it was certainly happening during Paul's era as well. And Paul's motives for going to the city of Thessalonica, even though his critics were comparing him to false teachers that would come around and try and fleece people, his motives for going there were not tied to dishonesty. So even though you have people in that community who don't like Paul, and they don't like Silas, and they don't like the message of the gospel. They're likely trying to portray Paul's motives in a bad light. Paul explained that those accusations failed to understand the motivation for his preaching. Those that were making those accusations against him did not understand what motivated, uh, what motivated him or what motivated Silas. Paul stresses here he wasn't motivated by error. He wasn't motivated by impurity. He wasn't motivated by deception. He wasn't motivated by pleasing man. He wasn't motivated by greed. These were not things that motivated the Apostle Paul. Those are the type of things that, that motivate many people. But that wasn't what motivated him. In fact, you know, this is my own thinking here as far as kind of like a testimony to this. I think you can tell that wasn't what motivated by Paul by three, at least three different things. I think the scars on his body testify to the fact that that's not 
what motivated the Apostle Paul. I think his arrest record uh, shows you that that is not what uh, motivated the Apostle Paul. And I also think his willingness to fund much of his ministry through the trade of tent making. Many of you know that, that he was involved in the trade of tent making. And he would fund most of his ministry through tent making. I think those are three testimonies that show that Paul wasn't motivated by dishonest gain or greed. I think those things help, you know, just, um, they validate the accuracy of Paul's claim. But people are motivated by all sorts of things. Uh, Are you familiar with the name Ernest Shackleton? Does anyone know that name? Get a bonus point if you are. All right, so every head shook no, unless I'm missing somebody. All right, Ernest Shackleton. I don't expect us to know who he is, um, but he was an Antarctic explorer. Um, he is probably the most famous Antarctic explorer, which just shows how not famous explorers. And it's like everyone's like, I don't know who is that. Um, so he was at one point planning an expedition. Would you would you think, you know, I complain about like a hint of snow that we would get, right? <laughs> I can't imagine agreeing to go and explore um, you know, either of the poles. You pick north or south. I don't I don't want I don't think I want to go visit either of the poles, right? But you know, he was putting together an expedition and he needed men to help him. So he actually decided to take an ad out. And uh The following ad once appeared in a London newspaper. I'm just going to read it. It's very brief. His budget must have been very small. All right? This is all the ad said. He said, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. That's all the ad said. And he signed it, Sir Ernest Shackleton, Antarctic Explorer. And amazingly, thousands of men responded to that. Thousands. He had thousands of response to that. People who were were eager to sacrifice everything so that they could finally, for once in their life, have a meaningful adventure. Right? They just will sacrifice everything. People are motivated by all sorts of things. We're motivated by things that sometimes I think would surprise us. And you know, you look at what Paul states in this passage. He knew that the Lord would test the motives of our hearts. You believe that, don't you? The Lord tests the motives of our hearts. And it was clear that the Lord was pleased to entrust the message of the gospel to the Apostle Paul. And Paul continued to proclaim it earnestly without fear of the harm that might come to him at the hands of his detractors. He was motivated to make it known. He was motivated to let people know about the joy that they could experience if they finally had a relationship with Jesus Christ who had come to save them. Can we not testify of the joy that it is to walk each day with Jesus Christ in our lives? Is that not a joy? And when you experience that joy, don't you feel motivated to share that with people? Don't you feel motivated? Doesn't that just exude from your personality and exude from your words and and just kind of drip off your life in all sorts of areas? You could see that in the Apostle Paul. There's something in us. The Holy Spirit, He makes it clear to us. He even makes it clear to unbelievers, I believe, when someone's telling the truth and when they're not. And I think sometimes when you're in the back of your head wondering if someone's telling the truth, I I think that's the Holy Spirit nudging you in certain areas, that that's true and that's false. And I think he even does that favor 
in certain contexts for unbelievers. And I think people could tell as the Holy Spirit was prompting people's minds and hearts that what Paul was proclaiming was true. They could tell that, that what he was saying was true. And so he proclaimed the gospel boldly without fear of whatever harm might come to him because he was motivated to glorify the Lord and to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. But I'll, I'll say this in light of what Paul's doing here and what he's saying here is he's talking about this idea of the Lord examining our hearts. How often do we examine our motives? Maybe frequently. Maybe that's something you frequently do. Or maybe it's something you sometimes do. Or maybe it's something you, something you rarely do. But I think that for us as believers in Jesus Christ, it's healthy. It's part of progressing in faith. It's part of spiritual maturity that we would actually do some self-examination. That we would examine our motives. What's motivating what we're doing? Why are we doing what we're doing? Would we be comfortable having our hearts exposed before the Lord and allowing Him to test us? Like the Apostle Paul is saying, his heart was open before the Lord to be tested. Would we be comfortable with that? You know what? I, I, are you familiar with Psalm 139? I'll, I'll show you a scripture here from that in just a second. When my wife and I were dating, we both decided that we would memorize Psalm 139. and We would quote it back and forth to each other. And there's a verse in Psalm 139 that I want to point out to us here. And uh, it's from Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, and it says this. Now think about this in, the, in light of examining our motives, all right, and what motivates us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. What do you think about that, the, that couple of verses, those two verses? Is this something we would pray to the Lord? If it's not something you've ever prayed to the Lord, I'd actually encourage you to pray it to Him. Even if you don't feel ready to fully pray it, just get past whatever hang-up is there, whatever hesitation is there. It's so liberating to just get to a spot where you can say, like David says in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Just search me, right? Try me. Some, verse, uh, some translations say, test me, right? Try me and know my thoughts. See if, there any be, see if there be any grievous or offensive way in me. You know, expose it. Like, let it be known to me. Help me to see it. And as you make it clear, lead me in the direction I'm supposed to go. Lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in that way so I'm not going in a direction that dishonors you. So you have Paul demonstrating that his motives were pure, that his heart had been tested, but that's something that's preached more than just in 1 Thessalonians 2. You see it here in Psalm 139, you see it elsewhere in Scripture. As men and women who claim to follow Christ, we should have hearts that are open to Christ in all respects. Lord, search me and know me. Third question I want us to ask today as we look at 1 Thessalonians 2, and that's this. Are you seeking glory for yourself. Are you seeking glory for yourself? Let me reread verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians 2. It says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So the Lord's created us to give Him glory. All aspects of our lives should be focused on doing that very thing. Now, in the early church, the Apostle Paul had been granted authority as an apostle. He had seen the risen Christ. He had been trained by Jesus directly. 
And that took place even before Paul began his church planting ministry. And you could read more details about that in Galatians chapter 1 if you read from verses 11 down to verse 17. That shows you a picture of what Paul, um, how his training was done and how the the Lord appeared to him and, and trained him directly, the Scripture teaches. But Paul did not use the authority that he had as an apostle. Um, He didn't use that authority to try and make demands. He didn't use that authority to try and strut around as if he was like a big deal. He also didn't didn't use his experience uh, with Christ as a means through which he could try and maybe obtain glory for himself. He didn't go around bragging about these things. He testified to their truth. He didn't brag about it and try and use his authority or his experience with Christ as a way for which he could gain glory or gain fame. That wasn't what motivated him. Now, naturally speaking, we are all prone to want glory. Naturally speaking, that's something that we want. You want it, I want it, naturally speaking. We shouldn't want it, but we do want it. In fact, isn't that what made uh, or motivated Satan to rebel against the Lord. You know, he looks at the Lord's glory and he covets the Lord's glory and he wants that glory for himself and so he rebels. And ever since, he's been convincing people and deceiving people into giving him glory instead of glorifying the Lord. It's been happening for generations and generations and generations. The other day, by the way, uh, I won't reference which which, uh, athlete this was, but the other day I saw a brief video of an athlete who was bragging about the fact that he drives cars that are more expensive than most people's homes. And this was him taking the video and him posting the video. So clearly he wasn't ashamed of this, but what did he want? He wanted the affirmation that would come from uh, other people giving him glory. And apparently that day he must have felt a little bit of a glory deficit. So he's like, you know what? People aren't glorifying me today the way I would like to be glorified. So he decided to glorify himself. And in fact, he made himself look like a fool. And I don't use that word casually. He looked like one who was worshiping himself. And that is foolish. And he was seeking glory. And he wanted glory, and apparently people weren't giving him enough glory that day, so he decided to glorify himself. Um, I don't know, do you ever see this sculpture? Does anyone know what that is? I'm not always convinced that I'm saying it the right way. I think it said Pieta. Am I saying it right? Pieta, right? Uh, Michelangelo sculpted this. And if, if you can tell what it is here, it's supposed to be Mary holding the body of Christ after his crucifixion. And Michelangelo was really thrilled with how this thing came out. And admittedly, I mean, when you look at it, that takes talent to be able to sculpt something like that out of stone, you know, out of marble or whatever it's carved out of. But I mean, it's just impressive to be able to look at that thing and think, wow, I mean, somebody had the talent to be able to sculpt this. And apparently the story goes that at one point Michelangelo was kind of just sitting back where this was being displayed and just watching people react to it. He just wanted to see what people's reaction to it would be. And he happened to be in a room where a group of people were coming around it, and they were looking at the thing. And they're like, this thing is beautiful. And he was feeling really good. And they're, they're like, look at this. Look at the detail. It's so lifelike. It's so realistic. I feel so gripped. I feel so moved by it. And they were discussing, who, who sculpted it? Does anyone know who sculpted it? And finally, they decided, oh, I think it was so-and-so. And they didn't think it was Michelangelo that did it. They thought it was somebody else. They're like, yeah, that looks like a work of so-and-so. 
and he was mortified that people thought that somebody other than him had sculpted this thing. So that night, he went back in and he chiseled his name on it so nobody would ever make the mistake again. He literally came back and chiseled his name onto that sculpture so that people would always know for all time, whenever they looked at it, oh, this is clearly a work of Michelangelo. You could see his name right there, you know? Um, we want glory, do we not? I mean, that's, that's in us. Like, we want credit for everything. We want glory for everything. And <laughs> we're not the first generation to struggle with that. But if we're living for the Lord's approval, which is what Paul was trying to demonstrate in this chapter of Scripture, we won't attempt to rob Him of His glory by seeking glory for ourselves. It's a mark of maturity when you stop trying to seek to glorify yourself, when you could be content with the Lord receiving the glory that He deserves. And again, you see this demonstrated in what Paul's saying here, but there's one other question I want us to wrestle with in this idea of, Lord, am I seeking Your approval or am I seeking uh, the approval uh, of humanity? And that's this, have you come to serve or be served? I think it's the fourth question he invites us to ask when you look at this portion of 1 Thessalonians 2. Look at verses 7 and 8, and we'll finish there today. But it says this, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very Dear to us. Now, one of the most amazing things about Jesus that encourages my heart is the fact that he was willing to come to this earth and serve people who were not grateful for him. He served those who never felt the need to thank him. Uh, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And scripture says he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're told that in Mark chapter 10. And it was clear that the Apostle Paul had been trained by Christ because you could see Paul ministering in that same spirit. And he reminds the Thessalonians that when he was among them, he served them gently like a mother caring for her infants. Like a mother caring for her infants. He served them gently. He took not only time to share with them the gospel, but he says he also shared his life with them because they were dear to him. I think that's a beautiful picture, this idea of sharing the gospel and sharing his life with them. I think that's a great reminder for us as we seek to do the Lord's work in our generation. He's not only calling us to share the gospel with others, he's also calling us to, in addition to that, share our lives. We are called to sacrifice our time for the sake of others as we joyfully serve them and give Christ glory. And I think that the gospel we preach is backed up by the service we render to somebody else. When you ser Sometimes serving somebody, sharing your life with them, will be the open door for you to be able to use the words of the gospel. You can see how serving others and preaching the gospel really do go hand in hand. They're both important. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's important that we not skip either. One of the marks of maturity... If it's your desire, I don't know what you pray about, one of the things I'd encourage you to pray about is that the Lord would help you to grow mature in your faith. And throughout our lives, we're always growing. There's never going to be a time where any of us in this room could say, all right, I've done enough growing. We're always seeking to grow a little bit more spiritually mature. So I'd encourage us to be praying about that, asking the Lord for help to grow spiritually mature. But a, one of the marks of maturity is a heart of service. Children demand to be served. Right? Children demand to be served. Mature adults go out of their way 
to serve others. In fact, again, one of the most obvious marks of spiritual maturity is a heart of service. I remember when I was a, a, a pretty new pastor, this whole mindset became very clear to me during that time. I remember in the church that I was leading, there was a very small group of people who were committed to serving one another and volunteering to serve. Very small group. And they rarely complained. They served, they rarely complained. And then I noticed that the majority of complaints in that church came from people who thought it was their right to be served. And when they didn't get their way, they made sure that everybody knew about it. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, I don't know what I thought pastoring was going to be like. Uh, but in that context, I really had my eyes open. I thought, boy, you have this small group of people, they just, they're quietly serving others, sacrificing their time, rarely complaining. And then you have this other group who just kind of sit around waiting to be served and then complaining about their service. I'll never forget it was a snowy morning with real snow, not what we got this morning. Um, but I remember it was a snowy morning. And right before the worship service, there was a man in the church uh, who took the time to shovel out the walkways so that the church, so that people could, you know, walk in without slipping. It was probably, I mean, it was a significant amount of snow. He was out there uh, for quite a while before the worship service began. And then there was somebody who got dropped off at the curb, and uh, I think she stepped in some slush or something that was on the road part and uh, complained loudly about the slush that she stepped in. And, and her comment was, who cleans these walks? And in my mind, I was like, not you, you know. It's like, not you. You complain about it. You don't clean them, you know. And you look at that and you think, all right, well, doesn't it force us to wrestle with the thought when you look at a portion of Scripture like this, have you come to serve or have you come to be served? One of the marks of spiritual maturity is a heart that says, for Christ's glory, I'm going to serve somebody else, even at great personal cost of my time or effort or energy or resources. I'm going to do it for Christ's glory. So let me say this as we finish up. As men and women who have been transformed by Jesus Christ, we're called to live for God's approval. It's this big thought that you can see the Apostle Paul conveying in this portion of Scripture. The way we measure success, the motives for what we're doing, the glory that we give, and the manner in which we serve should all reflect the heart of Christ who lives within us. I think that's the message this portion of Scripture is trying to convey. And I think that's something that we can internalize as a mindset or a mantra for how we choose to live our lives in order to glorify Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the privilege to be able to look at this portion of Your Word today and to wrestle with the things that You bring up to us in it. Lord, we recognize that the manner of living that's being displayed here, this Christ-like example that You had inspired the Apostle Paul to demonstrate, that was not the example that he was seeing from his detractors in Philippi and Thessalonica. And it's not the kind of example that many people in our day even embrace. But it is an example that gives us a glimpse of Your heart. And so, Lord, we know that it's Your desire that we live for Your approval. 
And Lord, so often we want to measure our lives by worldly standards, and we end up depressing and discouraging ourselves when we do that. Everything in this world seems like we quantify it in numbers, one way or another. Either this sort of thing has to happen by this age, or this amount of something needs to be in our bank account, or this achievement needs to be reached by this season of life, or this is the amount of kids you're supposed to have, and this is too many, and this is too little, and all sorts of things, Lord, that we look at and, and, uh, and we find ourselves sometimes buying into that and forgetting the fact that you're, you're asking us to really start thinking about what does it look like to be faithful to you in every context you place us in. And Lord, all our lives look a little different. But the theme that should be running through the hearts and the lives of each and every one of us is a theme of faithfulness to you where we seek to give you glory because you've transformed our thinking through your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, thank you so much for doing that. And thank you for the reminders that we're given from a portion of Scripture like this that really just lays it out there for us. Lord, help us to repent of the things that we've adopted into our mindset that really aren't examples of your standard. Lord, we pray that worldliness, as it, as it tries to creep into our mind and into our living and, in, and, and into what we value, we pray, Lord, that you would expose it as you search our hearts And we pray that by your grace that you would lead us in your way, the everlasting way, so that that would be the path that we walk and the path that we take. Lord, we're just so grateful for the privilege to be able to carve out some time like this where our minds and our hearts can be fed these these instructions from your word and this example and these thoughts from your word. We're so grateful for how it counteracts the programming that sometimes we receive from all the the base standards around us. Thank you, Lord, for resetting that for us. And thank you for the privilege that it is to walk with you as you have chosen to walk with us, as you guide us and as you direct us and as you're leading us. We pray that by your grace we would live a life of service that glorifies your name as we're motivated by what motivates you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.